Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. It's July 26th, 1656, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Ariel, Rebecca, and Ali. The Retrospectors. An inventory taken of Rembrandt's possessions revealed that the artist was a wild collector of art, jewellery, weapons, books, clothing, everything. He had busts of all 12 Caesars, bamboo flutes from America, dolls from Java, and huge elephant tusks, among other weird and wonderful treasures. But why do we even have this inventory? Well, that's because 17th century Dutch bailiffs were sent to the famed painter's home to itemise everything he owned for resale because it was today in history in 1656 that Rembrandt declared himself officially bankrupt. Yeah, and part of the reason that such an eclectic collection of things to auction remained was that he'd already had several auctions of his personal affairs in recent years. In December 1655, one of them was held in what was essentially the function room of a pub. You know, we have the recording of the receipt that was paid to the tavern where the auction was being held. So all of his good stuff had probably gone by this point. And he'd sold (laughs) some of his own work as well, which he had a habit of wildly overestimating the value of everything that he produced. Well, wildly overestimating for 1656. I mean, I think to be fair, whatever. If a Rembrandt wanted to sell you a Rembrandt for in 1656, it would yeah, worth it was it less in the long than run. what it's worth now. <laughs> yeah. Look, we can all look back and say it would have been a good investment. Yeah. I mean, I quite like the fact that Rembrandt lived like a fly artist. I mean, he would be on cribs these days, wouldn't he? <laughs> so whenever he made any money, he bought stuff. Mm. The house that he lived in is now the Rembrandt House Museum in in Amsterdam, which gives you a sense of the scale. And actually it was his house that got him into a lot of trouble. But he had debtors all over town. Among the many people who he needed to pay back were Peter van Loon, who uh, was a prominent art dealer and merchant in Amsterdam. Rembrandt had borrowed some money from van Loon to finance his own art dealership and wasn't able to pay back the debt. Uh, Ferdinand Boll, uh, who was a former student and apprentice who Rembrandt had helped turn into a successful painter in his own right, but he owed him money uh, because he had borrowed money to buy a, an, an artwork through him. Uh, and this tells you a little bit more about Rembrandt's joie de vivre. He also owed money to Abraham Franken, who was a wine merchant. Yeah, and they had been building up to this moment for the past 30 years or so. You know, in his younger years, Rembrandt was this wunderkind of the Dutch art scene. Everyone wanted their portrait painted by him. And what I love is he was just like, no, I'll do 80 of myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I've got a few really big clients to get out of the way first, wink. Um, during, and this was during the country's golden age. There was lots of money sloshing around, you know, in, in the Dutch Republic and the economic and cultural prosperity through the roof. Everything was great. So, you know, he was young and relatively newly married in 1639 when he purchased this huge townhouse in an incredibly swish area of Amsterdam, which you know, I think it, I got the impression that he also saw that as being a business decision. You know, he was courting the upper echelon of Dutch society it made sense for his home and his studio because he worked there as well to be in this really upmarket area. 
However, he did have to take out a large mortgage to do so. And then from here, things just went really off-boil really quickly in his personal life. So he and his wife Saskia lost their first three children in infancy. Only the final one, Titus, would survive. Then Saskia died in 1642 of TB. And then his romantic life became very fraught, not just emotionally, but legally and financially. I mean, first he did the classic. He shagged the nanny, who later sued him for breach of promise. Then he settled down with one of his maids, Henrikia, and they seemed to be, you know, they were really devoted to each other. They remained together until her death in 1663, but he couldn't marry her due to the financial implications of his late wife's will. She had left half of the property to Rembrandt for his use, but half of it to their son Titus. And under the terms of that arrangement, Rembrandt was entitled to use, you know, Titus's half unless he remarried. Which is badass. Mm, (laughs) (laughs) But you're absolutely right, I think, to point out that, you know, him cultivating a lifestyle which was slightly beyond his means wasn't just selfish, but was important for his self-promotion. I mean, the job he's in did rely on people of the upper classes wanting to commission him. That didn't always work towards the end of his life, um, partly because the the sort of sordid reality of what was going on in his personal life, but also because actually in his work, you know, the models he used were known to be sex workers and beggars. And like I say, he did a lot of self-portraits of him looking sometimes not particularly flattering. So the upper classes didn't necessarily want to associate with him, even though he was clearly a genius. But if you're going to get those clients, it's a bit like being an influencer now, isn't it? You actually have to spend the money on the Swish House and the Cabinet of Curiosities because if you're not living like them, they're not going to be persuaded to let you paint them. Yeah, the death of his wife Saskia is really regarded as this turning point in his career. But he also, around the time that uh, that Saskia died, it, it was then that he was painting his ultimate masterpiece, The Night Watch, and he was painting this for the headquarters of the Civic Guard. It's really regarded as the crowning achievement in his already remarkable remarkable career that had spanned all sorts of things from the portraiture of his youth to his innovations in etching. He had really mastered the art of etching in ways that lots of people weren't doing that meant that he could produce lots and lots of prints and then distribute them far and wide and that helped his fame build. But simultaneously he was working on these historical and biblical works for which he got a surprisingly uh, small number of commissions throughout his life. But, you know, Saskia died, he did the Night Watch, and then really went off the boil and stopped painting for a long time. And there's been a, a sort of great deal of uh, scholarly speculation over what that was all about. Some people said maybe it's because he was so in love with Saskia and he was just heartbroken. Maybe it was because he'd done this magnificent uh, masterpiece that he was never going to top. But there, but really, it's been this matter of public debate for you know the, the hundreds of years that have elapsed since. By this point, the mid-1650s, he was really in trouble. You know, he and Hendrik Jo were living with Titus and their own illegitimate daughter, Cornelia, who was born in 1654. At this point, he was behind on his mortgage payments after years of lavish living and buying up all the valuable art in town, as well as expensive props for his teaching. That was the reason, or one of the reasons, that he had weird things like suits of armour and lion skins lying around to be auctioned. His art wasn't commanding as high a price as it once did, even though critics now tend to esteem his later works more highly. Maybe at the time it was just a sense that the novelty had worn off. You know, people knew what Rembrandt stuff looked like and it just wasn't drawing in as high of a price. And although he was still really respected and he still had lots of 
of students. The fact that he was openly cohabiting with his lover shut him out of many of the more prestigious public works opportunities. You know, you mentioned he didn't get many church commissions. Well, you know, the Dutch Republic was under such tight control of the church as well that that meant that he didn't get a lot of commissions he otherwise probably would have got. So this is where he starts to try and get savvy and work out how he's going to avoid bankruptcy. So Titus had reached the age of 14. Rembrandt began what was really a years-long habit of drawing his son into all of this and ruthlessly using him as a bit of a pawn, really. So he pushed Titus to make a will. 14 was the minimum age to make a will in Amsterdam at the time. In it, he made his father his sole heir, so trying to find a loophole in the restrictions of his mother's will. But then he still has to die. Yeah. Well, it meant that Titus could then permit Rembrandt to use his half of the house. I think that was the idea of it. And he also thought that this meant that if the house was taken over by creditors, that it would technically belong to Titus. Some scholars actually suspect that the insolvency was avoidable, but that Rembrandt saw it as a chance to sign over the family home to Titus and that would dodge his creditors' claims on it. Um, what he, what we know he did do, though, was he applied for a court order called a... Um, my Latin's not great. A sessio bonarum, mm. which is basically when a debtor voluntarily hands over their personal property to their creditors and in exchange they are not arrested. So it was kind of seen as a genteel way to avoid bankruptcy. But part of the terms of this arrangement was that he was not allowed to sell any work without notifying his creditors because they were obviously entitled, you know, to a percentage of his future earnings until he'd pay back his debts. And at that point, a full inventory of his remaining possessions was made. And this had had a huge impact on him. I mean, at this point, he owned just 22 books for example. You know, this is a man of letters. Yeah, I mean, part of it looks to be that he was cleverly shunting off ownership of things to his son, for example, the house. <laughs> so, you know, that wasn't something that the uh, the people who he owed money uh, to could get their hands on. But i got to say, if I was Titus, if you come to me saying, I would like for you to make me the sole inheritor in your will, it's going to make my eyebrow just go up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wonder if you're uh, Rembrandt's son, whether you do just indulge him a little bit. You know, yeah. he's obviously a bit of an eccentric. And actually, it reminds me a little bit of when we were researching Gaudi mm. and this kind of suggestion that he could be easily confused for a tramp, basically. I mean, it was a similar look uh, that some people document Rembrandt as having, sort of paint smeared down his top, etc., just because he was so obsessed with the work, ultimately. I mean, look at that output. More than 300 paintings, more than 300 etchings, more than 2,000 drawings. Mm. That's someone with not much time to do much but paint. And I think, I wonder if that's kind of really what the insolvency was about as well. I mean, yeah, he collected. Yeah, he had kids. But I mean, actually... He obviously spent his entire life working and just didn't have time to think about financial management. Yeah, well, the historical context provides another clue as to what his insolvency was all about because it followed the first Anglo-Dutch war when a blockade of the Dutch coast dealt this really severe blow to the country's trade with the East and there's evidence that it was precisely the manufacturers of luxury goods. And let's face it, someone who's producing lots of artwork definitely falls into the luxury category that they suffered the most as a result. Well, Rembrandt actually lived another 13 years after this day. He was buried in an unmarked rented grave in the Western Church in Amsterdam. So at the time, it was common to lease a grave. This is very pragmatic and Dutch. You would get a 20-year lease on the plot, and then you could either extend it, or if you chose not to, the bones would be dug up and placed in a mass grave. You know, it seems reasonable terms and conditions, doesn't it? I would just say 20 feels harsh. I feel like yeah, 50 yeah, feels reasonable. That's, yeah. that's what I mean. It's very Dutch. It feels yeah. very realistic yeah. you have to be like, yeah, but will anyone really care? <laughs> <laughs> 
tomorrow. And he had an incredible, colourful life. Not least, you know, over a decade spent in prison. Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors.